Hey, we're jumping into, um, uh, we're continuing with Luke. So if you have a Bible, grab one. If you don't have one, grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. We're in Luke chapter 12. That's on page 845 if you're using one of the house Bibles here. And as you kind of flip to Luke 12, let me remind you uh, where we're at in the series. Jesus has just finished a bit of a throwdown with some of the religious leaders, and he's actually had some fairly harsh words with them about this contrast that he's seeing between their outer lives and their inner lives. And he's calling them on the carpet on it. And this week, Jesus is going to continue his instruction for us on this critical topic, the topic of hypocrisy. But today, he'll be a bit more focused. Today, he is going to narrow his audience to only include people who are following him, people who seek to look to Jesus for instruction and guidance in their life. And he says, I have more to say on the subject, but now, today, it's for my followers. Luke chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. Meanwhile, it says, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, pause it there for a second. As we dive into this moment, um, Luke tells us that there's this large crowd that is gathering around that's, that's flocking to be with Jesus. And to really understand this, let me kind of help you understand what Luke is saying here. He uses the word, when he says a crowd of many thousands, Luke uses this Greek word myrias, which is actually the plural version of the word for 10,000. So it's like tens of thousands is what he's saying. Now, in Greek... The highest word uh, for a number is this word, myrias. There is no word for like a hundred thousand or a million or a billion. This is as high as it goes. And so because of that, this word is also used as sort of a figure of speech, as a way of saying tons of people are coming. This would be like when you come home from work and you're driving and driving and you walk in the door and you say to your husband or to your wife, you know, there are like a million people on the road today. Now... What you're not saying in that moment is, hey, a few minutes ago I was on 26 and I counted and there are a million cars. It's not an exact moment. This is kind of how it feels. You're describing how the road feels. That's what Luke's doing here. He's describing to us how this moment feels. And he's saying, this moment, in this moment, things are starting to get a little crazy. This feels huge. Pandemonium is starting to break out as people are gathered and they are pushing and shoving and fighting to get close enough to see and hear Jesus. This enormous crowd has gathered. Jesus' popularity is in full swing at this moment. And Luke tells us this information, not just for fun, not just kind of as a a fluffy intro, but he wants us to understand what's going on here because it directly informs what Jesus is going to say to his disciples and subsequently to you and I today. Because you have to imagine how the disciples feel in this moment. You know, they've been following Jesus for, you know, a while now, years. They've been, they've been walking with him. They've been listening to him. They've been watching him minister. And all of a sudden now, the crowds are starting to come. People are starting to catch on. People are flocking and pushing and shoving to get to Jesus. And you can just imagine the disciples kind of looking at each other and saying, isn't this great? You know, isn't this amazing? Isn't this what we've wanted all along? Isn't this the kind of response we've been hoping and praying and aiming for that people would come, that Jesus would get real popular? 
And in this moment of what seems to be their greatest success to date, Jesus pulls them aside, not to celebrate or to give them a pat on the back or to say, you guys have made this all possible, you know, good job. No. Instead, he warns them. He gives them a warning about the danger of making the approval of others paramount in their lives. He pulls them aside to warn them. Hey, hey guys, if you follow me, if you truly want to be my disciples, this will not be the, the norm. This is not how it will always go. I will not always, and you subsequently, will not always be this popular. Warning, be on guard, Jesus says, against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You see, what Jesus illustrates for us here as he uses this analogy of yeast is that hypocrisy does not happen overnight. You don't just wake up one day and find that you're a hypocrite, like you weren't the day before and now you are. No one sort of wakes up and says, you know, 2016 New Year's resolution, I, I mean, be more hypocritical this year. That's what I'm going for. No, it is not how hypocrisy works. It happens real sl- subtly. It happens real slow. I went out yesterday, or actually my wife did this for me, and I bought a packet of yeast. Just so we could see, like, what we're talking about here. This is this little packet of yeast, and um, when I did this in the first hour, people thought I was going to do a science experiment, and then I'm not, and it turned out to be kind of a letdown. So don't get your hopes up here. I'm just going to dump it in the glass. Uh, this is yeast. Um, it's what you actually add to a ball of dough before you bake that dough so that you get bread, right? You know this. And some of you know, some of you don't, maybe, that yeast is actually just a tiny Little, this is like a bunch of tiny little single-celled organisms, actually fungus. And how, how it works is this, these fungus, they get into the dough and they start to consume. These little single-celled fungi, they start to consume sugar. And when they consume sugar, they have this reaction and then they like spit back up carbon dioxide, CO2. And it's that carbon dioxide gas that makes the bread rise. So when you eat bread, you're really just eating like a big bunch of fungi belches. This is like I'm killing your lunch right now. That's just how it is. Um, but here's the thing about yeast that you need to notice for, for Jesus' illustration here. It only takes a little. Just a pinch, just a tad, just a tiny little amount of yeast will work itself through the entire loaf of bread. And Jesus says, this is exactly how sin works. This is how approval-seeking works. This is how hypocrisy works. It starts so small with just one comment, one thought, one compromise, and then it spreads, then it grows. Be on guard against impressing others, seeking the approval of others, making that the most important thing in your life, because before you know it, it will grow into full-blown hypocrisy. And Jesus says here, hypocrisy is something that is devastating to your soul. Ironic, isn't it, that maybe one of the things in our world that Christians are most known for is being hypocrites or being hypocritical, and yet it is one of the things that Jesus speaks out most fervently against. When I was in the ninth grade, my best friend that year was a kid named Rob Wolf. We had both moved to Montgomery, Alabama. We were only there for 10 months while our dads were in this Air War College together, and then we both moved away. So for 10 months, Rob and I became friends. Um, we moved away and never really stayed in touch that much. But in 1994, the year after we had both graduated from high school, 
Rob's father was retiring from the Air Force, and as a part of his retirement as a B-52 navigator, they would have what is called in the Air Force a final flight. And so as part of your retirement ceremony, your family and closest friends and your colleagues would all gather on the edge of the runway, and then you would go up for a final flight. And you'd do like cool stuff like a few passes and some touch-and-go landings and things. And, and then you would land, and you'd come off, and they'd have this big celebration right there on the runway for you with all your closest family and friends. So Friday, June 24th, 1994... They're all gathered on the edge of the runway to honor and celebrate and greet my buddy Rob's father after this last flight. And unfortunately on that day, things um, went terribly awry. The aircraft, after making several passes and going into an extremely sharp turn, stalled, fell to the ground just shy of the runway and exploded, killing all four Air Force officers that were on board. My buddy Rob's mother stood and watched her husband die on his very last flight in service to his country. Now, this was a a tragic event that rippled all throughout the military community, and here's why. The plane that day crashed, not because of a technical error, not because of some faulty part. It crashed because the pilot, not my friend Rob's father, he was the navigator, this other guy, the pilot was, quote, flying outside of the safety regulations of the aircraft. And the real tragedy in this moment was this. This was something this guy had done before. This is something that he had done time and time and time and time again throughout his career. In fact, there were numerous crew members who had reported him and who had said they would refuse to fly with this guy because he was so crazy and reckless and was always breaking the rules in the air. It was reported, it was, um, it was you know, talked about, but no one, no commanding officers had ever taken action. No one had ever filed an official report on this pilot. And after this accident, the question became, why? Because this wasn't something, again, that he'd only done a few times. Numerous occasions of reckless behavior. Numerous occasions where where near tragedy happened because of this guy's reckless behavior. Why, then, had no one filed a report? Here's why. This particular guy was extremely charismatic. Everyone liked him. He was a ton of fun. He had a lot of influence. And he was considered to be one of, if not, the best pilot in the entire Air Force. And so, out of concern for what other people would think, out of concern for the social ramifications in the military, what my colleagues and co-workers would think of me, out of concern for what it might cost me in my career... Leader after leader after leader turned a blind eye. You see, no one wanted to do the hard thing because they were more concerned about the approval of others than they were about doing what was right. And so finally, in the end, the thing that people had over and over and over again written off as no big deal grew into something big and it had devastating consequences. And in this passage, Jesus says, because this temptation to seek the approval of others, because this temptation to be hypocritical and just look good on the outside while doing nothing on the inside is so much a part of your sin nature, because it's such a strong temptation for you, be on guard, watch out, keep real close tabs on who you're trying to impress. 
Because what may seem like a small, insignificant, no big deal thing to you can grow into hypocrisy and that will have devastating consequences on your soul. And so now Jesus, after setting the stage, will give us some truths in which we can battle hypocrisy. Truths that will help us fight against this tendency to be hypocritical. Verse 2, he says this, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. These are some of the most like terrifying verses ever, aren't they? <laughs> um, they should be. Uh, the first truth Jesus offers us here to combat hypocrisy is this fact. Our God is an all-knowing God. He knows everything He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. There's a kind of a fancy theological word for this. It's the word omniscient. Our God is an omniscient God. And Jesus says, if you can really grasp this, if you can embrace this, it can help you in your battle against the yeast of the Pharisees, against this tendency to be hypocritical. And it only makes sense, really. Because if your main goal in life is to impress people, like if that's really what you're after, is to look good in front of others then naturally you will be concerned most, maybe exclusively, with your outward appearance, what people can see. Because people cannot see what's on the inside of you. People don't know how you're feeling, what you're thinking, what is going on in your heart. The Bible is very clear. Only God can really see the heart of men. Only God. People can't see that. And so if your goal is to impress them, then naturally you will shine and polish and fix and and sort of spiff up your outward appearance how people perceive you, what you look like to them, and care very little about the inside that no one ever sees. But, but, but if God is really God, and if God is on your radar, and if God is someone you care about, and you understand this truth, he sees it all, then, then you'll be highly motivated to figure out what's happening inside of me. Now, if you embrace this all-knowing nature of God, you can't ignore the inside. Jesus talks about the inner room here. He talks about this inner room. He says, how, he says you know, when you're in the inner room and you whisper in the ear, people are going to hear, it's going to be made known. Here, he's referring to this very real situation in, in that culture. Houses were built with outer rooms and an inner room. And the reason they did this was because the walls in that day were primarily made of mud. That's the building material they had. And so how thieves would rob you is they would simply show up and dig a hole in the wall of your house, slip in and take your stuff. So in order to prevent this, to guard against this, what you would do is you'd build sort of a series of rooms and then in the very center you'd have your inner room where you would keep your most valuable possessions because now the thief at least had to dig through multiple walls and the chances of, of him kind of taking your things was, was minimized. And so you'd have this inner room where you keep your most valuable possessions. It was also the place where you'd have your most private conversations. Now, on the other hand, Jesus talks about the rooftops. The rooftops um, of these homes were flat and they're sort of the equivalent of our modern-day patio or front porch or deck. You'd, people would go up on top of their roofs and they would hang out and there's sort of a public place where everyone could see you and you would sometimes even make public announcements or proclamations from your rooftop. And what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, God hears everything you proclaim from the roof. 
He sees all that just like everybody else. But Jesus says God also sees everything that happens in the inner room. He hears everything you say in there. He knows you fully and completely inside and out. There is no hiding from God. For Christmas this year, my wife got um, one of those Fitbits. And uh, what a Fitbit does... Um, how many Fitbit receivers this year for Christmas? It's a popular gift, yeah. Um, what a Fitbit primarily does, it's, it's a lot of money to tell you how many steps you took. Um, uh, and it's, the idea is, is that you can monitor how many steps you take. You can try to like, set some goals and take some more steps in order that you might someday achieve fitness. Like, if you get one of these, you'll certainly be fit. So health is the goal of the Fitbit. You get a Fitbit so that you can like steps and increase your steps and then be healthy. It's a good thing, actually. It's not bad. Um, especially when your mother-in-law buys it for you and not your husband doesn't have to pay for it. So it's a good deal. Um, but what sometimes people do is they set goals for themselves. Like, I want to take like 10,000 steps. That's the popular number, I think, these days. 10,000 steps a day. And, and I've heard that sometimes what happens is at the end of the day, people will look at their Fitbit and discover, man, I'm short. I'm only like 8,000 today. And so then what they'll do is they'll sit there watching television or something and just shake their wrist. <laughs> if you've done this, do not admit it in public. We want to be authentic here, but not that authentic because we will judge you. Because that is about the silliest thing I have ever heard in my life. Um, I just don't understand it at all. Uh, who do you think you're fooling? Um, but it relates to what we're talking about here today, right? See... Jesus says God is not just looking at the Fitbit of your life. He's not just looking at the external reading of what's happening on the outside, but that he is able to look beyond that. He's able to look down into the spiritual health of your soul. And so the question that begs to be asked is this. Got any places in your life right now where you are tempted to just do this? Where you're tempted to just shake your wrist and fix the outside of your life and ignore what's really on the inside and what really matters and just sort of kind of fix the numbers so that everything looks good. Any places in your life where if you really understood who God was, you'd say, I gotta get down to the heart of the matter and do something about what's going on inside. Jesus says, remember, it's not what people see and think, it's what God sees and thinks that will ultimately matter, and God sees it all. Jesus goes on, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Some, some super intense words from Jesus here, right? And he reveals another truth to us that will guard us against seeking the approval of others. He says, when times are hard, know this. Know this fact about who God is. Our God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing, he knows everything, and he sees everything, and he hears everything, but he's also all-powerful. The word is omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. And these verses actually speak of one of the great truths that we don't often talk about in our culture, and that's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And this doesn't mean that, you know, God wants you to be, you know, 
all scared and paranoid your entire life, like at any moment he's this great heavenly angry abuser that's gonna gonna show up and put the smack down on you, like, no, be afraid, you know. No, that's not necessarily what he's saying. And we'll talk in a moment why we don't have to be scared of God. But the Bible says very clearly, time and time and time again, that to fear the Lord, to have a healthy respect for the Lord, to understand how powerful he is and live in awe of that power is a good thing. Proverbs says it is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of living a wise life. It's the very starting place for, for living the kind of life that God longs for you to live. Right? A life of freedom and of good choices. And here's the point. When we begin to understand how powerful God is, when we even just start to grasp his might and majesty, then we will revere him and and respect him and live in in awe of him. Jesus' point is this. If God can see and he cares about your whole life, if he can see your inner life and your outer life, and he cares about your inner life and your outer life, and then he has the power, based on what he observes, to determine your eternity, then... Doesn't that healthy fear, that concern about his opinion of you, carry a lot more weight than the opinion of anyone else? If that's really true about God, if he's really all-knowing and if he's really all-powerful, then doesn't his opinion matter more than your bosses, your spouses, your kids, your friends? You see, what Jesus says is, if you fear God, if you really live in awe of him, you'll find that out. When you face persecution, I mean, it's easy to sit in church and go, yeah, I fear the Lord, man. Revere, respect, you know, all that. But when times get tough and and you're in the face of a difficult situation and there's a potential cost, Jesus says that's when you'll discover how much you fear the Lord. He tells his disciples in this moment, you know, he's warning them, one day this crowd that clamors to see me will clamor to kill me. At some point, Jesus is warning them, loyalty to me, loyalty to me will cost you something. It will cost you something. So the question Jesus challenges them and us with today is who do you fear more? Whose opinion is of more value to you? Who do you revere? Who do you really respect? When times get tough and there are real consequences on the line, whose approval do you ultimately seek? Now, for the first century Christians, again, this was really about life and death. They were standing in front of people who could determine if they would live and die. And the question was, do you fear this person who holds your life in their hands more, or do you fear God more? Now, for us, we don't often face that kind of a situation. And yet the same principle applies. In the face of whatever compromise you're tempted to make, in the face of whatever consequence not impressing someone else will have, are you more concerned with letting them down And paying the price for it, are you more concerned with letting God down? Do you live your life with this understanding, I don't want to let God down. I'm more concerned about my eternal soul than my temporary comfort. Maybe another way to ask this question is this, just kind of a probing way to ask it. Who is the person that primarily competes with God for your approval? Is there someone like that? Is there a situation like that where you're tempted to sort of seek the approval of someone, maybe in a specific situation for something, and you're tempted to sort of fudge a little bit and set like faithfulness to Christ aside? Jesus says, fear. Over and above everything and every, anyone else, live in awe of an all-powerful God, and that will crush the yeast of the Pharisees. 
It will take away this temptation to be a hypocrite. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, he says? Yet not, not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. This is my favorite section of this passage because it lifts up and it shows the power of understanding and truly embracing who our God is. Jesus says, if you really understand who our God is, if you embrace who God really is, it will change your life. It's not just some abstract thing. He says, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. And now he says, also so impactful in this area is that God is all-loving. Does anyone know, by the way, the theological word for all-loving? Like He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and now he's all-loving, which is another omni-word. Pastor Matt got it right away, of course. Omnibenevolent. He's omnibenevolent. He's all loving. His love is more pervasive than you can possibly even fathom. He talks about sparrows here. Matthew 10 in, in, the, in another gospel in, in Matthew. Um, Matthew says, you can buy two sparrows for one penny. And, and Luke has a sale going on. He'll give you five for two. Right? This is biblical proof that Shopping at Costco is actually okay. Luke supports Sam's Club purchases. No, here's the point that the gospel writers are making. They're both trying to make this point. These are cheap, insignificant birds that you can buy in bulk for almost nothing. They were actually food for the poor. They were worth very little. Um, They counted for almost nothing. But what Jesus says is God even cares about them. And if God cares about them, how much more does he care about you? And here's the point. Here's what Jesus is saying. Understanding and embracing how valuable you are to God will A, give you great courage in the face of the rejection of others. You see, I can handle the rejection of others. I can handle your disapproval if I know that the God of the universe approves of me. It doesn't always make it easy. It's not even fun, but I can handle it a little more steadily and a little more securely if I know that God loves me. That's A. B, if you embrace how valuable you are to God, it will move you from hypocrisy towards authenticity. I want want to explain this one a, a little bit in this way. If someone loves you unconditionally, if they say, you know, I value you so much that nothing could ever change that, do you have to pretend for them? Do you have to fool them and trick them into thinking that you are better than you really are so that they'll love you if they love you unconditionally? No. No. Because they're going to love you no matter what, so you don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to put on a show for them. They love you no matter what. Now you're free to just be you. Good, bad, ugly. Maybe the best example of this is marriage. You know, when you're dating, and high school kids hear this because this is so true, on some level, there is always some hypocrisy going on. You are constantly sort of polishing up the outside of your life and showing that other person the very best version of you, right? Like, this is me. I'm pretty much perfect. You know, no blemishes, no scars, no baggage. Like, I always pick up after myself. I promise, right? And then, as you get married and you move into the relationship, maybe even hopefully before you get married, you move into the relationship and you feel a little more safe and you feel a little more... uh, accepted and valued and comfortable and loved, hopefully then there's a little more freedom to be authentic and to be vulnerable and to be real and to show your cards a bit. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, God, you're so valued and you're so safe and you're so loved that no pretending is required. First of all, because 
Even if you do pretend with God, who do you think you're fooling? He sees it all. But secondly, also, because you don't have to. You don't have to pretend. There's so much freedom to be authentic when you understand who our God is. He knows you completely. He has the power to do anything he wants with you, but he also loves you completely amidst that complete knowledge. That blows my mind. Because I think if you guys really knew everything about me, I don't know it would be quite as easy if it would be quite as easy for you to love me. But God does. God does. This is why Jesus says, don't be afraid. This is why the Bible says, you know, perfect love drives out fear. So Jesus says, fear God, revere him, respect him, live in awe of him because of how much power he has. But, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of him because his love for you is more comprehensive than you can even begin to imagine. Like fear God, but don't be afraid of God because he loves you. It's so good. Friends, what if you embraced the love of God so fully that you no longer needed the acceptance of others to give your life meaning, purpose, value? Think of what that would mean for your relationships. Think of how you wouldn't have to use people for compliments anymore. Right? You wouldn't have to use people to make you feel good about yourself. Why? Because you could just feel good about yourself because you were loved so completely by God. That's the freedom. That's the authenticity he offers you. Verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges or confesses me before others, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. I want to talk for a second about this idea uh, of acknowledging or confessing. Because when you confess something, like the image we have for, uh, for confession is this image where you've been pulled into the police station and they're interrogating you and it's like confess. Or like your kid, it's like someone spilled Kool-Aid on the carpet, and we're going to find out who it is, and that's how it goes in our house. Like, we'll all sit here until someone confesses. Because you've all said that we didn't do it, and we know that's not true. So, at some point, someone's going to come to terms with the truth, and accept the truth, and admit it, and, and proclaim it, and confess it out loud, right? Um, so you're tempted. So confession sort of gives this acknowledgement, and confession have this idea uh, kind of woven in, that you're tempted to maybe not except the truth. There's this temptation to sort of shrink back from it, but then you decide, like, okay, I will embrace it. In our house, we have an issue right now, and our big issue is that one of our dogs, our, our larger dog, unfortunately, likes to go into our play-slash-guest room and use the bathroom. I don't know how this happened or why this became a thing, but for whatever reason, she just, like, she just boogies to this room and then uses the toilet in there. We'll let her out if she would just bark or do something, but she goes in there to go. And so this has been happening for a number of months and it's driving my wife absolutely crazy because she does not like our guest room to smell like dog pee, of course. And so she has come up with this law, this rule, this decree. Thou shalt not leave the playroom door open or thy shall be killed. (laughs) And she's serious. You know, it's one of those moments where I'm like, kids, you're on your own. I cannot protect you from this one, right? So it's like, don't leave the playroom door open. Well, the other day, um, Amy comes up from downstairs and she's hot, you know, like her face is red and like there's smoke coming out of her ears and like she's got a knife and a sword. No, she didn't have that, but she's like, who left the playroom door open? And like the kids and I are looking at each other like, oh no, someone's going to die. And so, of course, my youngest PJ is like, it was dad. And I was like, And the bummer was, is I, I kind of, I wasn't sure, but I kind of thought it was me. I was like, darn it, I was in there just a little bit ago. I think it was me. 
And so I look at, so PJ accuses me, which, oh, why, why? And I'm looking around, I'm like, who's not here? Dax, he's not here. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure it was Dax. I'm like, boom, kick it off to the kid who's not around, right? I'm thinking, okay, by the time he gets home or shows up, you know, she'll have cooled down and he'll live and then we won't have to have a big fight. This will all be okay. I'm sure it was Dax, honey. Ah, that stinking kid, he's always doing this stuff. Man, I can't believe it. Sure enough, like right after that, Dax shows up. And so I'm like, oh no. He walks in and Amy's like, Dax, you left the thing. And he's like, right away, it was dad. (laughs) Okay, it was me. I think it might have been me. And so I had to acknowledge and confess that not only did I leave the playroom door open, but that I tried to pin it on one of the children, which was one, uh, another whole conversation. Um, Don't judge me because you've done it too. Um, Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, there are going to be moments when the pressure is on and you're going to be tempted to bail on your Christian faith. You're going to be tempted to, to, you know, through word or through deed, bail on your allegiance to Jesus in order to avoid the consequences of following him and, and gaining the disapproval of someone in your life. The pressure is going to come. It's going to happen at some point. And in this moment, Jesus is saying to us as his followers, the true measure of our devotion to him comes to the surface when the pressure is on. Because again, remember where we are. Remember the scene. The crowds are pouring in. Jesus is real popular right now. But soon, Jesus says, I will not be so popular and it will not be such an easy thing to follow me and acknowledge me. And then, gentlemen, then friends, we will find out where your allegiance truly lies. You see, there is this encouragement from Jesus. If you acknowledge me when it's hard, when you stand up and live for me, even when the current of culture and relationships is heading in the other direction and there is a price to pay, then, then you will be one of mine. And I will acknowledge, confess to God, seated on his throne, surrounded by angels, this is truly one of my followers. I guess the question today is, have you done this? Have you acknowledged Jesus as Lord? Have you declared him as Lord of your life? Have you said, yeah, my life's about following him? Have you done that before men, before people? Is that a public thing? Is that something that you're willing to sort of live by and let people see in your life by the way you act and by what you say? By the way, this is not licensed to just go and be obnoxious. This is not Jesus saying, go and be obnoxious. This is Jesus saying, truly and sincerely follow me, and then people will see it in your life. And then when it gets hard to follow me, keep following me. And then he says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Friends, this verse that I think has become the source of so much fear and angst for people over the centuries, is, I believe, actually one of the most gracious verses in the Bible. Quite simply, here's what Jesus is saying here. You're going to blow it. At some point in your life, by word or deed, you're going to blow it. You're going to not acknowledge. You're going to not confess. You're going to not speak or live in a way that declares Jesus as Lord of your life. Every person in this room will at some point deny Christ through word or deed. At least once. Probably tens of times. Maybe hundreds. Probably thousands. Probably thousands of times, maybe tens of thousands, maybe myriads times in your life, you will act or think or do something that denies your allegiance to Christ. And Jesus says, when you blow it, there will be forgiveness. 
But, he says, but, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to reject time and time and time again what the Holy Spirit is telling you about Jesus. This is something different. Because the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Gospel of John, John says this, the main goal, the main job of the Holy Spirit is to come and to testify about Jesus. To come and testify to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls about who Jesus is and who God is and what Christ has done for us and how much God loves us. And so the Spirit comes to whisper a testimony of Jesus Christ to you. You see, we all blow it and reject Jesus, but to embrace and settle into a place where you refuse to receive the testimony of the Holy Spirit, where you refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sin, to just settle into that place and never receive that and harden your heart to it, that is something that God will not forgive because God will never force his will on you. He will never force you to receive the gift that he offers you. You see, sometimes people hear these words and they get kind of nervous. They get kind of worked up. Man, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. And they start to kind of freak out about that. Well, what if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Does this mean I'm going to hell? Oh my gosh, what do I do? People get kind of neurotic about that. Not the goal of Christ here. This is not what Jesus is saying. If you have like, responded to the voice of the Holy Spirit and declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, you are on God's team. You are on God's side. You're going to blow it. You're going to mess up. You're not always going to do the right thing. But God is not going to reject you. There's forgiveness for that. But if you harden your heart to God, then he will say, your will be done. Right? One time a man came to Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, and he was very concerned about this very thing. He was very concerned that he blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, I'm just certain I'm going to hell. I have this fear that I'm going to hell, that I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And so Spurgeon could not get, like, talk this guy off the ledge. He was kind of nuts. And so finally he just said, okay, okay, well, let's just say, like, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Let's just pretend you are going to hell. What are you going to do when you get there? And the guy thought for a minute, and he goes, I think I'd start a prayer group. And Spurgeon kind of chuckled and said, if you'd start a prayer group when you get to hell, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So, you know, calm down. Again, the idea here is not to make you feel unstable. You can have assurance. You can have stability. You can have certainty about your standing with God if you've declared Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, not, and by the way, friends, this is not just a transactional moment. This isn't a, I made this statement, I declared Jesus Lord and Savior, and now I get my heaven ticket. No, this is a change of status. This is a change of life. This is a change of, 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 of paradigm. I used to be Lord of my life. I used to run the show. I used to call the shots. I used to search for meaning and purpose for myself. Now I declare Jesus as Lord. He calls the shots. It's a moment where we declare it, but then it's a life that we continue to live. And sometimes we mess up and we kind of grab the Lordship back. But for the most part, we've entered into this new reality. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's now Lord. And then these last verses, verses 11 and 12. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. See, the early church, Luke writes to the early church, and he, he writes these words to people who are facing this very reality. They are being drugged before religious officials and government officials. And, and they are being pressured into denying their faith, into denying Christ. And what's interesting when you read about the early church, 
um, is that in these moments, these very real moments where they're going to be burned at the stake or crucified or, or whatever else is going to happen to them, their biggest fear was not, am I going to die? Um, am I going to be tortured? Their biggest worry was not about the pain that they might endure. Their biggest fear was this. Will I cave? Will, when the rubber meets the road and it gets really intense, will I deny Christ? Or will I be able to hold on to my faith? And what Jesus says here is something that is so important for us as we seek to live lives for God, no matter what we're facing. What Luke tells the early church and what Jesus wants to tell you and me this morning is this. You do not fuel your own faithfulness. You see, standing up for Jesus... And living for God and becoming this authentic person is not something that you accomplish by sheer willpower. That is not the God we serve. He doesn't say, here's the rules, here's what you have to do, good luck. And now you just sort of buckle down and you do it. No. The key, Jesus says, is to get as close as you possibly can to the Spirit. The key, Jesus says, is to remember that you cannot accomplish by your own strength, but you must accomplish it by His strength. The only effort, if there is any effort in the Christian life, is the effort of surrendering and depending more fully on the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That's, what, that's the message here. The message here is you want to be a hypocrite? You want to be authentic? You want to fight the yeast of the Pharisees? Surrender your life to the Spirit. Because the Spirit will empower you to do and say and be and act and become the person that you could never become on your own. You can never become on your own. So this morning, we're going to move into a time of communion. And I just want to offer this to you. We're just going to give you a few minutes here before we head back to football today or whatever else you've got going on. Maybe this morning as we come to the table, you need to just remind yourself again that you serve an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. Maybe those truths need to seep a little deeper into your heart. Maybe today's a day where you need to declare Jesus as Lord. You just need to have that moment where you say, I need to make that shift from being Lord of my own life to making Jesus Lord of my life, to receiving his death and resurrection on the cross for me. Maybe there's a place in your life where you have received Jesus as Lord, but there's a holdout. There's a place where he's still not in control and you need to hand that over to him. Maybe, friends, this is a moment where you need to stop trying to do this Christian life by your own strength. And you need to spend a few minutes... You need to open your palms and you need to surrender the Holy Spirit. Say, God, I need your power. I need your strength. Whatever you need to do today with the Lord, take a few minutes. Come to the tables. They'll be open. Um, Take the elements back to your seat and then we're going to receive them on our own together, which is to say, take them whenever you're ready. We're always going to kind of do this together on our own. Um, But do what you need to do with God to battle the yeast of the Pharisees and find the authentic life that Christ wants for you. So whenever you're ready, come to the tables.